Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. I've been, uh, I've been in ministry for uh, over 40 years now. It's hard for me to believe, but it's true. And one of the things that I've learned in those 40 years is that whenever you have a hard time getting to the pulpit, it's always because what you've got to say uh, is, uh, is going to be uh, challenged. And it's been hard getting here this morning. No, my car didn't break down. I'm talking about just getting here with a sermon. It's been hard. And I think it's going to be hard because we're going to talk about something that is uh, in some ways very controversial. Uh, uh, It has uh, caused many uh, divisions in marriage and has even caused some murders or two, tragically so. Today we want to talk about shoes and the feet they cover. See, already it's happening. We Americans, we love our shoes. And uh, we've got a thing for shoes. Um, the, uh, there's a group called the uh, Wholesale Shoe Liquidators. Uh, I don't know what exactly they do. I guess they're wholesalers of shoes. But they report that in America... The average man has 12 pairs of shoes. The average American woman, well, let's just say more than double that. <laughs> and, uh, and yet they say that the reality is that um, we have about five pairs of shoes we really like, and those are the ones we wear. And we may have lots of other shoes, but we got about five pairs, and that is what what we wear. And uh, especially we we wear and we love those uh, running shoes that we have, the training shoes that we have. Uh, And I think there are good reasons for that. They look good. They give you stability. They give you a measure of comfort. Uh, and uh, if you should ever need to move real fast, you're always ready. I think some of us like to wear shoes, uh, tennis shoes, running shoes, training shoes, because they give the hint that though we don't train and we don't run, one day, maybe next year, we're going to get up, put them on, and we're going to go run five miles. So we like that. We like that. We like that. But in uh, human history, shoes have been always vital. They've been important to uh, human beings for protection, for comfort, uh, to be able to, uh, to create movement. And that's been especially and particularly true for soldiers in battle. And so we're not especially surprised to see that when the Apostle Paul is spelling out just what the equipment is that God has given to his people for spiritual warfare. We're not really surprised when he finally gets to the feet and he begins to talk about shoes. Uh, 
Because Paul has defined victory in spiritual battle as standing and standing firm. And there's no way to stand or stand firm if you haven't got a good or proper pair of shoes. And so here's what we hear Paul say. And I'm going to read this for you because we're going to go to Isaiah this morning. We're going to go to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, verses 7, 8, and 9. But uh, we're going to get started this morning in our passage for our series, Ephesians chapter 6. And Paul says this. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That's victory, standing firm. Standing firm. When there is an assault from the evil one, victory is standing firm in the face of that assault. Stand therefore, he says, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth, gathering up all of our lives with all that is true about God, all that is true about us, all that is true about the world, all that is true about the past, the present, and the future. Gather all of who we are within God's truth and putting on the breastplate of righteousness, that piece of armor that protects all of our vital organs that is in for a believer that is made up of the righteousness of Christ covering all of our sin so that when God sees us, he sees Christ and he relates to us on the basis of the Christ that he sees. Then he says, and as shoes for your feet, he finally got there, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, immediately that causes you to pause because I might have expected, I might have expected Paul to say, uh, and as shoes for your feet, put on the gospel. That would make sense to me. But what he says here is not that. He says, but as shoes for your feet, put on, what does he say there? The readiness that the gospel of peace gives you. Put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. And so the idea here seems to be that if you're going to stand, if you're going to win in the battle, you've got to put on the right shoes, that the right shoes are absolutely critical. So know what they are. The mystery, though, is just what are those shoes? What are those shoes? Now, Paul constantly uses throughout this passage uh, the uh, images from a Roman soldier because we said the Ephesians were used to seeing Roman soldiers all the time everywhere. So they'd be familiar with things like the belt and the, and the breastplate and even the shoes. Now, the Roman soldier wore a, a caliga, which was kind of a half boot made of one piece of leather. It looked a little bit like a, uh, a sandal, had a real thick soul and was studded with, with metal studs on the bottom. There it is. There it is. There's a good picture of it. The great thing about this shoe for a Roman soldier was that uh, 
when they were forced to run to battle, which they were, it was part of the Roman strategy. Their, their armies were always moving quickly. They could, they could run to a battle. Uh, they, they would move quickly toward a battle. And then once in battle, the, the great thing about these shoes was they allowed you, because of those metal spikes, to stand firm in the fight. You, you weren't easily pushed back. They gave you a really good fitting. So what you've got here are a pair of shoes that allow you to stand, stand firm, and move quickly all at the same time. And so Paul points to those directly, if you will, as an illustration of what God gives and what God provides, but yet he doesn't say, put on the gospel as these kind of shoes. He says, put on the readiness. And the question is, what, what are you talking about here? If, if victory really depends on me standing and standing firm, what, what is it that you're saying I need to put on my feet in order to stand? What is that? What is this readiness? How does, here's another question that comes, how does this gospel of peace, this good news of the gospel of peace, what does that have to do with the bad news of being in a fierce battle? What does peace have to do with a battle? It's, um, it's curious what he said and troubling. But there's a hint here. When he talks about the gospel of peace, he actually points us back to an ancient picture and an ancient prophecy. And that's why I've, I've had you go with me to Isaiah chapter 52. And I want you to see with me verses seven, eight, and nine, because I believe this is what Paul has in his mind as he's describing for believers how it is they can stand and stand firm in the battle and actually experience victory. Let's take a look at this together. You may be uh, uh, familiar with this passage, I don't know. Let's look at it together. Isaiah says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. There's your good news of peace right there. Who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together. They sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, Isaiah says, for the Lord has comforted his people and he has redeemed Jerusalem. So what do we have here? Well, we, as I said, we have a picture and we have a prophecy. Now, in Isaiah's day, uh, kings and nobles would often use runners to do two things. They would use runners to direct the battle because no king in his right mind would ever be on the front line and actually fight. They always, yeah. Uh, and that's probably a good thing. I mean, where, where are you if your king is dead? But uh, they would send directions through runners, but they also would send news of battle back to their capital cities using runners. And it is this, uh, this picture, this message from the battlefield that we have portrayed for us here. A great victory over a great enemy 
has been won by a great king in this picture. And so he dispatches a messenger to let his capital city know. The city is a mess. Look at verse 9. It, is, it has waste places in it. But the runner's appearance, the city is a mess, but the runner's appearance is beautiful, or his feet are beautiful. Why? Because they, they bring those feet, bring the one who brings uh, news that is most assuredly good. How do they know it's good? Well, because there's just one of him running. If there had been a defeat, there would be a whole lot of them running, running back to the city. There's just one. There's something beautiful about the way that he runs. He runs with confidence. He's not turning his head back to see if anybody's chasing him. He's running with confidence. He's running straight. He's running strong. And just the sight of this messenger in his beautiful feet gives hope and encouragement to those watchmen on the walls who are watching from this desolated city. And Isaiah says that in this city that is a wasteland, and that word for waste means it is a city that is filled with emptiness and ruin and desolation. It's not a place where you want to live. It's not a comfortable place. It's not a, it's not a safe place. It's a ruined place. It's a ruined place. And as he gets, the, Isaiah says, as this messenger gets within earshot, what the watchmen have been seeing and what they're hoping for proves true. The almost breathless runner shouts a simple but powerful message, a message that comes in four parts and you can almost see him running. He's been running hard. He's, he's almost out of breath, but, he, but he's made it within earshot of the city and what he says is peace, good tidings, salvation, the king reigns. Peace, good tidings, salvation, the king reigns. Everything the city needs to hear, everything that, that uh, these people living in a, in, a, in a city of waste, in a desolate place, everything that they need to hear is said in those four few brief points. He, he doesn't say, he doesn't say how the king won. He doesn't say what the king exactly has done. But he simply lets them know, peace has come. The war has been decided. Good tidings are all that he has to bring. There's, there's no good news, bad news. Do you ever have that experience? Anybody ever come to you and say, do you want the good news or bad news first? Let's do a poll. How many of you always want the bad news first? How many of you always want the good news first? How many of you just want the good news, no bad news, even if there is bad news? How many of you just love bad news? You say, I live for it. As long as it's not about me, if it's about you, tell me more. Tell me more. This is good news only. No bad news, just good news. 
And, and, and the notion of salvation is critical. It means rescue. There is a rescue on the way. And that can only come because the one, that one who did harm, that one who enslaves, has been defeated and the king is coming. What king? Well, the true king, the good king, your king. He reigns in victory is the message. And so consequently in verse 8, if you'll look there for just a second, what, what, what you see is the watchman. There's no mistaking now what they've seen and what they've heard. Even though the message has been brief and they break out into song. They repeat the message that they've heard and they keep looking. I love this. <laughs> Why do they keep looking? Because they know that this, this runner is really just a forerunner. That he's coming ahead of the king who is behind. And so they are watching and they're excited to see the runner coming as he comes to hear the message that he shares, but they keep looking because what they really want is to see the king. Look at the verse again, eye to eye, eye to eye. They want to see the king for themselves. In verse nine, we see the picture of the city as the word of victory spreads. And these people living in a wasted city, living wasted lives in a wasted city, suddenly become a mass choir of praise. Everybody's singing. Everybody's singing. Everybody's singing. All of us at Wake Forest are singing. We've never done this well since 2006. We, are, we amaze ourselves. My next door neighbor is an offensive coach for Wake. He drove by me in the afternoon after the game. He was all smiles. I'll bet you money. Well, I don't bet. I, I, see, if I were a betting man, I'd bet you money. He sang his way home because of victory. Well, the whole city is singing. The whole city is singing. And all that remains for them is to receive their king home again. Uh, to enjoy the comfort that he's bringing. The comfort of his rescue, of his redemption, of his restoration. Of course, there's a problem. There's a problem. Because you see, the city has been wasted because they joined the enemy in an alliance against their own king. That's how the city became a wasteland.
So you have to go back up and look again at what the messenger said to find that there's not just the announcement that the king has won, there's an announcement of something more. There is grace shot through all of this announcement. Now, when we read this, we take this for granted. Your king has won. <laughs> they didn't know whether he was still their king or now had become their enemy. So maybe, just maybe, one of the key words in that whole announcement is simply that one little word, your king. Your king. Can that, can that really be true? He's still mine? And the affirmation is, of course, yeah. So, in this prophecy of Isaiah, we have a victorious king, we have a, a city in helpless ruin, and we have a running messenger with a ready message that changes everything that changes everything. And no doubt, most of you have already seen the bigger picture here, haven't you? Because what we have here is the story of humanity and of the great work and redemption of God through his great king, the Lord Jesus Christ. You already saw that, though, didn't you? This is not just a picture. This is also a, a prophecy of what and how God would work in this world. What we know is that this city to which the runner runs with his ready news not a guiltless city, a rebellious one. They have no one to blame but themselves. And yet the messenger and his message are full of hope. His good news is a gospel of peace. And I want you to see something critical here. Readiness is a key thing. When the king had won and victory was sure, somebody had to be ready. Somebody had to be ready to go with the news to the city. Somebody had to go and make the city ready to receive the king. And that somebody had to be that runner. And that runner had to be ready to run to go and tell the good news. All right. So now let's go to Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians 6. Let's go to verse 15. And let's look again at why, why, why. In the face of fierce battles to come, Believers are to have and keep on their feet the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
Why? Think with me just for a moment. Why is it that in getting ready to do battle with an enemy who kills, steals, and destroys, an enemy who enslaves, why such a gospel as this is critical for everyone involved, everyone involved, Why? And I don't want you to miss this. The belt, the breastplate, all defensive. Nobody won a battle by whipping off their apron and beating somebody else with it. You take off your breastplate, you're, you're dead. All defensive. This is a shift. This is a shift. And what Paul is saying here is absolutely critical because what we have here in these shoes is is a piece of equipment that is both defensive and offensive for the first time. Now, for the believer, the gospel of peace is a message for us to live and fight with remembering. Remembering the gospel of peace and being ready in our own minds with the gospel of peace is what helps us to stand firm in the face of Satan's slanders and accusations and temptations. The gospel for us is always ready to reassure us of whose we are, what we are, and where we're going, where we're headed. But I suspect you know that by now. But I, I, I need to, I need to, uh, I, I need to go go on beyond the defensive. I, I need for you to see the offensive nature of these, of this these this shoe covering here. The gospel of peace is not, is not just for us. The gospel of peace is not just given to us so that we can stand firm when we're under attack. Yes, it is important for that. But that is not the only reason we have them on. Do you remember what I said? That it gives a firm fitting when the battle comes. But I also said that those Roman Caliga half boots also freed up that soldier to move, to move. That the gospel of peace is something that makes us ready not only to stand firm, but to stand and make progress going forward. Why?
because the gospel of peace is not just for us. It is not just for us to be safe. It is not just for us to be secure. It is not just for us to be protected. The ultimate aim of our warfare is not simply you and I get into the fight that's part of following Jesus and get through it untouched. God help us as such a selfish perspective. But the ultimate aim of our warfare is to seize cities of captives that the enemy holds in ruin and waste and empty places, set free The way that they're set free is when the gospel of peace is actually delivered to them behind enemy lines. When those who have on their feet the gospel, the readiness to share the gospel of peace, when they see, watch now, an opening in the battle, they move past the enemy to those whom he has captive, to those who are living wasting and wasted lives just like that soldier once lived before he or she found and heard the gospel of God's peace in Christ Jesus. And so the picture here is a very powerful one. It is of a soldier ready for battle who is ready when 
the evil one assaults with slander and accusations and temptation, but is also, and ready to stand firm, but is also ready to move quickly to get behind the enemy, behind the enemy, because there's a second victory. It's not just a victory that comes with standing and standing firm. Part of the victory is also when the gospel, the readiness of the gospel of peace propels one of the king's messengers to get around the enemy and go to the wasting and the wasted and say to them, Good news. Salvation. Your king with all the meaning behind that. I've already unpacked that. Your king has won. You don't have to be behind the lines anymore. You don't have to live a wasted and a wasting life anymore one of our great sins is that we have lived thinking that those gospel that gospel readiness was just for us and we have kept it for to ourselves we have not in the battle we've if, if we've been on our uh, in a state of some spiritual readiness, we, we've been able from time to time, maybe often, to defeat the enemy in his assaults. But rarely have we ever thought about those behind the line. And so we fought and we stood by God's grace and we stood firm. Battle is over. We go, I can rest now. Thank God. I'm fine. I'm fine. My destiny is secure. With no real concern for those left behind the line.
can't help but wondering sometimes if one of the things that COVID and all this craziness we're living through, wearying as it is and all that stuff, all that. has not been used of God or isn't being used of God to show us how much we've gotten church wrong, the gospel wrong, the whole point of our lives wrong. There's no way, there is no way you or I can say we're living healthy Christian lives if all we're ever really concerned about is whether we are safe. Whether our destiny is secured. (laughs) There's no way we're spiritually healthy if we don't think about and care about those folks whose lives are still wasting and are being lived in a wasted land. Because what that says is that the love of Christ is failing in our hearts for others. (sighs) You know, I think there's a reason why Paul had to make the statement that he made at the beginning of this passage earlier on where he had to, to say to us, you know, your fight is not with flesh and blood. It is because he, he, he was setting us up to remember this. Our fight is not with people. Our fight is for people. Our fight is not with people. Our fight is for for people. And we've been called to run. Yes. That's part of what Paul is saying here. But we're not called to run from hurting people. We're called to run to hurting people. And where we've missed it is we've thought that to be a faithful follower of Jesus meant fighting people and running from people. Show me where Jesus did that. Show me where Jesus did that. If Jesus did to us what we do to others, we would never have been saved. It would never have happened.
See, here's the, here's the bottom line. Believers aren't called just to be gospel ready. Believers are called instead to run ready. To run gospel ready. You say, Pastor, exactly what does that mean? I mean, we should be gospel ready defensively when, when Satan comes to attack. But we should be running gospel ready and make our way behind him, around him to those who need to hear the gospel of peace. Now, part of what this means is that you and I have got to be able to recognize when an opening comes. Y'all got a card when you came in. Would you pull that card out? Here's something that I know. Look up here just a second. In, in, In the mysterious providence of God, Somehow the destiny of others is linked. To the shoes we wear. And whether we live our lives ready to run with the gospel. Look at that card, would you? Uh, Look at the card, look at the side that doesn't have the lines on it. Flip that over. Let me offer to you five places to look for in another person's life who needs to take their next step toward Jesus. There's a book, it's a, it's a great book, uh, entitled Once I Was Lost. Two uh, campus, um, two campus leaders working in Colorado and California put the book together and uh, the research came from California. College students in the University of of California at Berkeley who actually came to faith in Christ. Who knew it could still happen? See, we don't think it can because we've lost the sense of the power of the gospel. They interviewed some 2,000 postmodern college students who came to faith in Christ. 
And they knew how they got saved in terms of the gospel. And that's not changed. It's by repentance and faith in the message of the gospel. But what they were interested in knowing was how did they get to the point where they could hear the gospel? Because the reality is it's hard for people today to hear the gospel without checking out before you get a chance to share it or get all the way through it. At least in these United States. So they were curious, what was the journey you were on to get to a hearing of the gospel? And what you have are five openings for the gospel that they discovered, five places where a person who is running gospel ready can go in. Now look at this with me, will you, just for a minute? The first one was, they said, they, they did, they, they did the, the oddest thing. They actually asked lost people who are now saved, you know, what did it take to get you saved? We, we decide on behalf of the lost what they need. Give away, you know, free toasters, microwaves, whatever. God bless us American Christians. Yes, God bless us. We think we know what the lost need, and some of us have been saved since we were five, and we have no idea what the lost need. So you... Does, it's pretty smart to ask them, so they asked. That's what they said. First of all, the first opening for the gospel came when they, when they moved from distrusting Christ and Christianity and Christians to trusting a living Christian. When they moved from distrusting to trusting, just in a relational setting. They finally met a real Christian, unashamed Christian, who proved that he or she could be trusted. That was their first step toward hearing the gospel. Listen to me, look at me. Nobody's gonna listen to you share your faith if they don't trust you. Not in these United States. They will write you off before you can get the words out of your mouth. Second stage they found was that after having moved from uh, distrust to trust, they, they went from being complacent and, you know, eh, Jesus is good for you, but he's not a big deal to me, to being curious about Jesus. And one of the strategies there is not only just to be a person they can trust, but actually to live your life in such a way before them, linking it to Jesus, always linking it to Jesus, not being a nice person doing nice things. There are lots of nice people out there who don't know Jesus. You'll get them confused. <laughs> but live your life in such a way that you pique their curiosity about the Christ you keep crediting for the different way you're living. Now, I will tell you this is costly. It means helping messy people through the messes of their lives. And a lot of us don't want to do that. We go, I got enough mess in my own life. I'm not, I don't want your mess. I'm going to stand my ground, but I'm not going in there. A third opening for the gospel among these young Americans came when they moved from being 
closed to deep change. I'm fine. I don't need, nothing needs to happen with me to being open to it. And part of the secret of their beginning to being open to change was reflected in the honesty and the authenticity of believers who had built a relationship with them to actually own their own need of change. We think we'll win people to Christ by putting on this air of perfection. We turn them away. And when we slip up, they call us, what's the word starts with an H? Hippa what? Hypocrites? When they see change happening in you, they're more open to change happening in them. They will own it. Everybody's messed up. I mean, everybody. Look at the person sitting in front of you. Messed up. (laughs) And y'all on the front row? Messed up. (laughs) Fourth, a fourth opening for the gospel among those young Americans was when they were ready to move from just dabbling in spiritual things to actually seeking God for life in all its fullness. When they began to see that dabbling, while it's interesting, isn't satisfying. But again, again, this is where A believer who's built a relationship has to confess their own hunger for God and demonstrate their own pursuit of God to show that he's worth pursuing. Finally, final opening for the gospel among these young Americans came when they went from a knowledge that they were lost, they finally discovered that recognized that they needed a refuge, that they were living, wasting lives in a in a wasted city. And it was then they were ready to hear the gospel of peace. It was then that they were ready to hear the call to repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. Now, for some people, this happened rather quickly. For others, it took a long time. What they found in the study is that some got, to, to the, got moved from the first stage to the second stage and then got stuck. I, I've got one person I've been sharing with for years now who is stuck in the dabbling stage. It's breaking my heart. But I see the opening into his life and this is what I need for you to see. God has called you to run into that opening. Now flip your card over because we're going to wrap this up. Who in your life, who in your life right now fits one of those stages? Who do you know or suspect is lost or needs Christ? Who is at one of those stages? They don't trust Christians at all. They don't trust you. They don't trust Christians. They don't trust the church. They don't trust trust Christianity. That's an opening for you. Who in your life? Who in your life? Strap those gospel running shoes on and ask yourself, who in your life needs to go to that next step? Who Who in your life is complacent but needs to to become curious about Jesus. He's not just 
one option among many so that they go from him being just one option among many to being a really interesting option for life. Who is that? Who is that? They're not against you. They're just not for you. Who is that? Put the name down. Who's the one who says, I don't need God, I don't need change? It's great for you, don't, not, not so great for me, I'm fine. What an opening, what an opening there. Because one day their life is not going to be fine and you don't want to rush in and say, I told you so. That's not the gospel of peace. That is not the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is I know, I know someone who can help. Who do you know? who's dabbling in the Christian faith. And needs to feel their hunger for God. Jesus said the fields are wide unto harvest. There are some that are already in stage five right here, right now. They're right around you, right now. And, and they know they're lost. They know they're broken. They just need somebody to speak the gospel of peace to them. Who might that be in your life? Who might that be in your life? Some of you, I'm afraid, will not be able to start filling out this card because you don't know anybody who's lost. That's a problem. That's a real problem because here's what I know about you. I don't care your age, stage, it doesn't matter. God has you as you are, where you are. He's given you gospel shoes to wear. And he's put lost people within your reach. You're responsible to know who they are you're responsible to know where they are. And if you don't know where to find out where they are, and you're responsible to begin then to run into that opening. Can I just voice for the lost people in your life, the son or daughter you've given up on, the wayward cousin, a hostile coworker? Can I just be their voice for a moment? And can I say to you, please don't run away from me? I don't need you to run away from me. I need you to run to me. And don't bring me some feel-good pablum. I don't need any feel-good pablum. I, 
I need some good news because I need peace. Please don't fight with me. Now, I'm going to fight with you, but don't fight with me. Even when I fight with you, will you please fight for me? I need somebody to fight for me because I'm, I'm enslaved. I'm living a wasted life in a wasted land. I may not show it, but I'm broken. And I'm having a hard time finding hope. So please, please, don't run away from me. I need you to put your gospel shoes on. I need for you to leave them on no matter how long it takes. Keep looking for the openings and run in. These are the best looking shoes there are. And if I had time and I could get these shoes off, I'd put them on, even with this suit. It's the only reason I'm wearing a suit today. That and I'm a little cold. Can you imagine? Maybe I'll just wear these second service. This is the picture. I don't care what God's called you to do or where you are in your life. Whether you're wearing a pair of Carhartts all day or whether you're in a suit, this ought to be on your feet. you've got to. Father God, I wish that all these cards were filled up with names. I wish all of our feet had running shoes on. I believe with all my heart those blanks can be filled. Those shoes can be put on. 
By faith, Lord God, I believe that the destiny, the eternal destiny of some people will change because of what you've shown us today. God, I know it will be hard. It's much easier to wear dress shoes. It's much easier to wear something, anything else but gospel-ready shoes. Our feet to the lost may be beautiful, but they're always dirty too because of where we have to go. God, raise up believers in this church who are willing to get their feet dirty to go to those broken places and people just like you came to us. got your feet dirty. Please, Father, give us a sense of the urgency of eternity and the brevity of life and the great need that the wasting have for a Savior. For Jesus' sake, I ask it. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.